Hello, um, welcome to the latest edition of Business Leader Insight brought to you today by our presenting sponsor, Nightstone Capital. Business Leader is the UK's leading business media platform and we have a print magazine, powerful live and virtual events network and a website updated daily with news and insight. This live interview series is seeing us bring you inspiring business figures and for today's interview we are speaking to the legend that is John Taffer. Before we start, a quick reminder to follow Business Leader on Twitter and LinkedIn, and you can always find us at www.businessleader.co.uk. So let's begin. Welcome, John, and thank you for joining us today from Las Vegas. How are you? I'm doing fine. It's a beautiful day here so far, but my day is just beginning. Yeah, because it's 10.30 there, isn't it? I think yes. you just yes. Yeah. So. Well, we'll start with um, just talking about the uh, pandemic, John. I mean, Las Vegas has been open for around a week now. I mean, what's the feeling in the city uh, following the reopening? And, and is, it as, is it business as usual now? And, and, and how would you describe the, the atmosphere? You know, what we found here uh, is that uh, people coming back to businesses has sort of been cut up into thirds. A third of the population is coming out pretty quickly when we reopen. And we're finding this across the country when we reopen. That first third tends to be a little younger, a little invincible, if you will, and they're jumping in quickly. The second third is the reserved third. They're going to watch for a couple of weeks. They want to make sure there's no surge in illnesses. They want to see how restaurants look and act and, and places of public gathering or people wearing masks. And, not. and then they'll make a decision in a couple of weeks as to whether that third participates or not. But the third third, is what I call the certain third. That's the third that's not going to come out until they know they're safe, that there's a vaccine or some rock solid uh, a cure or treatment in place. Now, that last third, we're not going to see for a while. Uh, uh, the issue with that last third is they tend to have the highest disposable income. They tend to be a little more affluent. They tend to be a little older. So we're seeing these stages and when people look at what's going to happen and try to forecast our rollout, not too many people are thinking about this demographically and how each of those thirds represent a different demographic opportunity. The first third is going to be more value oriented, maybe a little less experience oriented, maybe not as safety oriented. The second third starts to change a little bit. They are more safety oriented. They might spend a little more money. It might fall into more of a family environment than, than a singles environment. And then, of course, the third third, you know, price resistance starts to disappear. Our modeling starts to change. If I can be simplistic, the first third, the lights are bright. Second third, I dim them a little. Third third, <laughs> I dim them again. <laughs> so with that dimming of the lights, though, are, are, are music changes and product changes and menu changes. And there's a certain adaptability that needs to happen as we go through this process. That said, I want to answer your question. We were terrified. And in Las Vegas, the average casino has implemented over 800 policy and procedure changes within the business. Everything from employee check-in, employee attire, employee sanitation processes, taking temperatures automatically, non-invasively on the way in, uh, uh, all employees in mass, contactless check-in, controlling how many guests can get in elevators, sanitizing chips and playing cards, uh, separating card playing, separating slot machines. Some of the casinos even have a mechanism in the slot machine that when you hit the payout button and get your chip, the machine shuts down until it's sanitized again, and then the operator has to reactivate it. So mm -hmm. there's slight changes, but to make a long story short, 
They've done everything they can possibly think of within all of these casinos. I mean, everything they can think of. And now the fear is the customer behavior more than the business behavior. And I think the same is going to be true there. A restaurant, a bar, a casino can do everything right. Think about it. Everything. They sanitize their employees, the dynamic, the separation, everything. But if customers come in and act irresponsibly, and that irresponsibility is broadcast on social media or with groups of people standing in front of the restaurant or the casino without masks, standing close together, et cetera, et cetera. The customer's behavior can ruin the future of that business. And that's a serious change to the way all of us have to behave and, and as businesses and what we need to specify. And it creates a really scary couple of choices. But right now in Vegas, all these systems are in place. I'm surprised. Uh, we took a drive down the Strip last night. It's much busier than I thought it would be, Ali. We're, we're, we're really starting to see some volume, some activity here pretty quickly. No, thanks, John. I mean, you, you kind of touched on it then. And the, 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 hospi the hospitality industry around the world has taken a massive hit. Uh, many leaders have pivoted their businesses, and you've given you've given some examples there. I mean, how, how will those survive? You know, what, what will be the ingredients to make the survivors and, and, and the losers uh, uh, when we come back to some kind of normality, do you think? Well, you know, it's interesting. If if you had a place that sold your favorite hamburger, Ollie, this is your, your go-to place for hamburgers. But now post-pandemic, doesn't seem as clean and as organized to you. Customers seem to stand too close. As, you know, it just doesn't feel right to you. But the place that has your second favorite burger is spotless. Systems are in place. You, you're going to go where your second favorite burger is instead of your first favorite burger. And that's going to be by choice. And that is a huge dynamic change to our entire business because the word trust just ratcheted up above which burger you eat. That's powerful. So the first thing we're selling as an industry right now is not food or drinks or guest rooms. The first thing we are selling today is trust. And we have to understand that as an industry, that our whole purpose right now is to establish a different level of trust with our customers. Now, that second third I talked about, Ali, and that third third, this trust really is going to matter too. So how do we get trust? I mean, trust, you're not going to trust me sight unseen. So the only way I can build trust is through transparency. So I have to do things that are visible to people, whether it be on social media, whether it be at the front door, whether it be when you enter. Things have to look trusting. I have to feel that, that everything I'm doing as a business owner is increasing the perception of trust in my customer. If I can accomplish that, I can make it through this. So it's a huge change in the way the customer thinks, and I think a huge change in our priorities. Sorry for the long answer, but no, no, no. It, it's an important no. one. Dr. Well, and John, and do you think that, I mean, leaders, and especially you, they're going to have to adapt now, aren't they? And, and, and if they don't, what will be the, the consequences? Well, you know, I think uh, here in the States, I think that, that uh, uh, we could lose 40% of our operations. And in that 40%, I include sh some chain operations. Chains will close two to 300 stores. Heck, Starbucks just announced that they're closing 200 stores the other day. A major 24-hour fitness gym company just filed for bankruptcy. A number of theater companies might not make it. So even large corporations are going to close percentages of their operating units. So we're going to see a, a big change. And the ones that don't gain trust 
at a brand perspective and at an operational perspective are clearly the ones that are going to be left behind because we still want our hamburgers. We still want our chicken. We still want our fish and chips. You know, we <laughs> still want the things that we love. So we want to go get them. So the barrier to business is trust. And if we don't break the trust barrier down, you know, I think those are the brands that suffer. Thanks. I'm glad you mentioned uh, fish and chips there uh, for the UK audience. Of I mean, course. And just talking about the, the UK uh, hospitality industry is due to open very soon. Do you have any tips for leaders to make customers feel more comfortable? I mean, you've talked about trust there, so you have covered it. But just just, just any general tips for leaders over here of, of hospitality businesses? Yeah, I think that, that, that we need to think about, you know, what are the things that will create a perception of trust? So, you know, a, a week or so ago, I was on social media. I was in a restaurant, had a photograph of a cook in the kitchen. And there was a pan in front of him, and he was laying a lasagna noodle in the pan. And the post said, come pick up our famous lasagna for curbside pickup at 5 o'clock today. But the guy wasn't, he was wearing a baseball hat from home. He had cheap, disposable, clear plastic gloves on. He wasn't wearing a mask. He was in street clothes. Everything was wrong about that image. Doesn't matter how good their lasagna is. We have to change. So if we want to create a perception of trust, what do we post on social media to communicate that trust? Do we do posts of the procedural changes that we've made, of the cleaning that we've made, how excited we are to welcome our customers back because we know we're safe, the back of the house procedures. I own a franchise in America called Taffer's Tavern. We're putting cameras in the kitchens so that you can watch your item get made on your phone. That's transparency. That's trust. So what are the things we can do as we get ready to open to start building trust, to start creating an anticipation that, you know, that's the place where I'm going to go get my fish and chips. That's the place where I'm going to go get my food. So we have to think in those terms. First, we have to build trust. Then we can build a customer base. Yeah, thanks, thanks Tom. Just moving on, uh, in, in your books and your podcasts, you talk a lot about excuses and how they hold people back in business. Well, why is this mantra so important to you? And, and was that something that, that, that you've done in your past career? Oh, sure. I think we all have. I bet you have too, Ali. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, when I was doing about my 120th bar rescue episode, you guys will like this story. I was in Detroit, Michigan, and a female owner owned this bar. And I said to her, why are you failing? Like I do on every episode. And she looked at me and she said, I'm failing because of the euro in Greece. Now, this was a bar owner in Detroit, Michigan. It was the most absurd excuse I had ever heard. Sure, there was a little Greek community there, but it wasn't like they were spending euros on the street. And at that moment, I realized in 120 bar rescue episodes, never once has a failing business owner looked at me and said, John, I'm failing because of me. Not once. They've always blamed the government, the economy, the weather, the location, the competitors. They have every reason for failure, but their own. So I thought to myself, I found a common denominator of failure. And the common denominator of failure is an excuse, because think about this. If you wake up in the morning, Ollie, and look in the mirror and blame someone else for your failure, you have no reason to change. But if you look in the mirror and say, I'm failing because of me, you won't like that. And that will prompt change. So what is an excuse? An excuse is a reconciliation of a mistake. Either you didn't do something you should have, you did do something you shouldn't have, or you screwed up, or you wouldn't need an excuse, would you? So we come up with some excuse that makes us feel warm and fuzzy about our own failures, and we go on and we look in the mirror that morning and we blame it on that excuse, and we never change.
It is the ultimate reason why we fail, I believe, as human beings, is because we allow ourselves to embrace excuses and feel good about them. So my whole book that I wrote, Don't BS Yourself, Cut the Excuses That Are Holding You Back, which is available on Amazon, by the way, uh, uh, um, defines this whole excuse-making process and then takes a look at the biggest excuses that we all use every day, which is fear, uh, uh, I don't have money, uh, uh, um, uh, circumstances, oh, it's a pandemic, oh, I have no money, oh, this, and you know, we come up with every reason not to go forward. Well, now we got the biggie, we got a pandemic. This can either paralyze you or this can motivate you. You want to let it paralyze you? Go look in the mirror and blame your failure on the pandemic. You want to have it empower you? Go look in the mirror and figure out how to make money in a pandemic, how to move forward in a pandemic. Don't allow it to paralyze you. So, yeah, I got a bit of a thing with excuses, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> no, no that, that, that was fascinating, John. Thank you. Just just sticking on, on that theme, and people often make excuses, like you say, when the, when the business is struggling, or they decide to double down and fix it. But how, how do you know when the time is right to give up and move on to a new idea? Well, you know, I think that, that, that it's not your decision. It's the customer's decision. And I think that's the most important thing that we need to understand in our business is we have to learn how to get close enough to our customers. And I, my first book was all about the science of reaction management. Uh, raise the bar. In reaction management, the premise of reaction management is we don't serve food, we serve reactions, we achieve it through food. And the cook in the kitchen is not making our product. He's creating the vehicle. The product is the reaction. And let me explain it in a simple way. You and I go out to dinner tonight. I right? We sit down at the table, we order some food, the plates come in front of us, we look down at the plates, we look at each other's, either we react to it or we don't. If we don't react to it, the product failed. So I suggest to you that the restaurant is not in the business of creating the plate. They're in the business of creating the reaction. And that plate needs to be redesigned 100 times if necessary until you sit up when it hits the table. We don't play music. We play reactions. We achieve it through music. We don't serve people. We create reactions. We achieve it through service. We don't create drinks. We create reactions. We achieve it through drinks. We are in the business of creating reactions. And he or she in our business who creates the greatest reactions wins. So to answer your question, I better know what the reactions of my customers are. I got to get, as I say, belly to belly with them. I've got to talk with them. Yeah, I might need to sit at a table with them and sip a cup of coffee, six feet away maybe. But I have to know how they're reacting. Now, they speak with their wallet. So statistical tracking and menu mix and all these things certainly matter. But we need to be close enough to our customers, especially now, to understand what they're reacting to and what they're not. I'll tell you the first way to do it. And every manager in the country will kill me for this in, in the UK, but every owner will love me. First thing I would do is I would go into my management office and remove the chairs. Mm. They're not allowed in the office anymore. They should be out on the floor. They should go in the office when the place is closed, period, end of discussion. Every minute they're in that office, they're not looking in customers' faces. They're not looking in employees' faces. They're not taking in reactions. They cannot possibly run the business in an office. So especially today, I, as, as one who believes very much in engagement, I have to force engagement at the management level deeply. Get the chairs out of the office. Let's understand the office is for these hours only. You're out on the floor. That in of itself 
will make a huge change in the way we do business today. They cannot not be watching our customers, especially now. Now, thanks, Tom. There's some some great advice there. And, and again, you, you have touched on it a bit there, but it, you know it's clear in your show, TV Bar Rescue, that there is a science to run a, a successful bar, and you've developed the restaurant of the future in, in your your Taffer's Tavern concept. I mean, as well as that that reaction that you talked about, can you share some other secrets to to to, to create an, a, a really successful bar? Sure. You know, uh, uh, there's a number of things. Of course, merchandising is key, and when we create a successful bar or restaurant. You must understand that people get a complete determination three steps in, the three-step rule. So when I walk up to the front door, is the front door clean, right? Is the landscaping in that area right? Does the building look appropriate? First opinion, I open the door, step in. Second opinion, smell. What does it smell like? Third thing is, where do my eyes land? Now, your eyes are going to land in the brightest or most moving area of the business. I want your eyes to land not on a pretty picture in the wall. I want your eyes to land on the back bar. I want your eyes to land on a merchandising center. So I want you to get a step one, great reaction. Step two, great reaction. Step three, whammo, right on product. The other things that are very important today is service sequencing. And it's critical today if we want to sell beverages in a bar or a restaurant or a pub environment that we do two separate menus, period, end of discussion. And nobody can argue with me on this. Every promotional piece on the table should be about beverages, not food. Every promotional thing on a wall should be about beverages, not food. Remember, people always order a drink when they eat. They don't always eat when they order a drink. So we need to create a cocktail program around everything that they eat so we can upsell their beverages appropriately. So you sit down at a table. There's a table tent with beverages on it. There's a big board on the wall that has our signature cocktails. It could be gold embossed in an upscale environment. It could be factory printing on tin metal in an industrial environment. But it says how important it is. Server comes up to the table, gets a drink order. I have not let you think about food yet. There's no food menu on the table. There's no food merchandising visible. This is strictly to force you to make a drink decision the first moment that you're here. You're not going to wait four, five, six minutes for this either. Now, the second we come up to the table, I have the menus in my hand. I take the drink order, hand out the menus right then and there. So I am now, by that single change, I have increased beverage sales in restaurants by up to 80% by creating a sequencing system like that. The next element is merchandising, obviously, and rituals can be very powerful. You know, we did a barbecue restaurant uh, 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 here not long ago, and we had a, sm a little handheld smoke machine. We created a smoked iced tea, and it's a simple glass that they squirt some smoke into, put a piece of wood on top with the logo of the restaurant. When it's delivered, they take the top off and they pour the drink from a carafe into the glass. It's already made at the bar. All it is, but now when the top comes off and you pour it in the smoke, every other table now wants one. So we look at height very carefully. We carry trays lower so people can see them. We take the long way to tables so we visually merchandise product throughout the room constantly, particularly beverages. We take a look at beverage ordering, and we understand that to create bar sales or beer sales as an example. I only have two opportunities with the draft beer system. And this is so applicable there. I mean, I can sell size and I can sell occasion. So, Ali, I got to sell you third beer. I also got to sell you bigger beer. 
So do I have three size beers in every operation? Because about 30% of men here in the States will upsize if you give them that opportunity and language sell them into it. So do we have three size beers? You better. Are we offering beers with whiskey and Irish whiskey and side shots? Are we doing things like offering a shot when somebody orders a beer? We even have little clip-on shot glasses that go on beer bottles to do that with. We have to sell today like we never sold before. And these are the ways we do it. So sequencing is very, very important. Signature cocktails and looks are very, very important. Creating height in a cocktail program is very important to create visibility from other tables and as it flows through. Table side rituals, even having a bartender squeeze the grapefruit and then walk away. Some table side ritual draws attention to a beverage program. And then, of course, bartender rituals. Uh, uh, and I'm not suggesting they flip limes and flip mixing cups. That works in some concepts. Bartender's rituals just might be the beautiful mixology process of creating a cocktail over four minutes with special this and special that and drops of bitters. And So remember that we have to create importance. People don't order drinks. They order relevancy. People don't go to bars and restaurants. They go where they feel relevant today. We are a society of relevance. We don't do play presentations today. We do Instagram presentations. We got to get it on Instagram or it failed. Everything we do today must create relevancy for the consumer. That's our society today. And make no mistake, we are in a relevancy business. If we get that and then focus on creating reactions that drive relevancy, that's how we win today. So it's the way something looks. It's the way they feel when they pick it up. You know, here in America, we have all of these uh, uh, um, small boutique and uh, craft beer companies, hundreds and hundreds of them. Some cities have 50, 60 breweries now all making you know, craft beer. Problem is investors now started these companies, not beer people. So half of the beers are terrible. I mean, they're just awful. But, uh, you know, they feel so cool with that bottle. They feel so relevant. They're drinking a beer that's terrible where for half the price, they could have had a good delicious beer, but they have, they're relevant. And that's what we need to understand. And that's a big difference from the way our society was. Relevance doesn't come in cheap pricing. Sometimes relevance comes in higher pricing. Sometimes relevant comes in a presentation that I post online. Sometimes relevance comes in the fact that I'm being responsible by eating a vegan dish or whatever it is. What is the relevancy for your business? You better find it. And then you got to create the reactions to drive it. Sorry again for the long answer, but these are important no, topics. Absolutely uh, fascinating, John. And, and, and those were my questions. So we're just going to move on to uh, some from the uh, audience now. We've got one here. Uh, so, do, you know, do you think this crisis provides a way out, an excuse for many businesses that, that are failing anyway and just had poor leadership? Oh, sure. I, I think uh, that, that any failing business has a failing owner. End of discussion. If, if you look at Bar Rescue, you'll notice I always go at the owner first because I can fix the bar. That's bricks and mortar and lights and speakers and back bars and, you know, training. St that's easy. If I don't change the dynamic of leadership, I cannot change the business. You'll never see a dynamic bar or restaurant run by an undynamic manager. No, thanks um, there, John. And the next uh, question, we've got one from Laura Trowbridge-Perez here. Do you have any smart working tips to work harder without burning out? That's a really good question uh, there. Yeah, you know, I think that, yes, I think that in, a, in our business, the problem with it is we can work 20, 21, 22 hours a day if we want to and burn out. So you have to create a schedule for yourself. 
And you've got to be able to know when to walk out, when not to. Is it in the middle of the shift where you can catch two hours? You open the shift, you have great employees working, you can come back and close the shift, it's an off day. You have to build this into your life. You must manage both effectively or you'll burn out. So not enough time in a business, failed business. Not enough time in your personal life, failed personal life. You've got to find that balance. I get you're going to work 17, 18 hours a day sometimes. I get that. But there's days you can work six too. Okay, and no, thanks, John. Another question just come in here from Emma. The UK restaurant scene before the crisis was already stepping away from formal dining. You mentioned relevance. Do you see? Do you think there is still a place for formal dining, and, and will we see it return? You know, uh, uh, the the luxury dining sector is challenged, and and some of it is economically driven. Uh, uh, the problem with fine dining today is it's moved too close to what I call special occasion dining. And when our customers only come for their birthdays and their anniversaries, we have a problem. So how do we create contemporary luxury, contemporary upscale environments that target a slightly younger age group, provide the experiential elements of luxury in a hipper sequence, you know, in a more contemporary way of presenting, you know, plate presentations, you know, go to a classic stuffy steakhouse. I've done this, by the way, for fun. Take all their existing food and just put it on different plates and garnish it differently and make it look hip and watch what happens. It's the same darn food. But so we have to take a look at what can we do to create relevance. So in the formal dining sector, stuffy doesn't have to go with formal. Traditional doesn't have to go with formal. We got to start breaking that mold a little bit. And I'm not saying be trendy because I'm not a trendy guy. Every trend ends. <laughs> so... <laughs> We don't want to go there. So start with things that are that are basic, that make sense, that are mass appeal, and then dress them. Give them visual relevance. Give them importance in the way people feel about eating the item. Uh, thank you. Uh, one from Andrew Scott, a marketing-related question here. How do privately owned restaurants and bars attract customers from the big brands who have huge marketing budgets? Yeah, I mean, I believe, and I, I own the company for many years, still own it. We just don't use the brand anymore, called the Neighborhood Marketing Institute. And the Neighborhood Marketing Institute, and we did plenty of work uh, uh, in Europe and the and United Kingdom. The whole premise of it is the success of almost any restaurant or bar is within three or four blocks of that bar. So what we like to do is we like to say, don't market to a city, market to the trade area. So we'll do as silly a thing as put a map at the front door, big map. And I'll put a hostess or host at the front door. When they come in, they'll say to you, hi, where did you come from today, home or work? Work. Can you show me where on the map? Right up there. Great. I put a green dot there. Next person comes in, came from home. Where? There. I put a red dot in. I'll do this map for two weeks. And at the end of two weeks, I'll have two clusters of dots. And I'll realize, wow, I'm not marketing to the city of London. I'm marketing the three blocks in the city of London. So first thing we need to do is understand our trade area, not our market area. And it's not a city. So mass media doesn't work. I'll tell you what I did when I went to Dallas, Texas and opened a restaurant of my own. I took and created a postcard. I had ribs, barbecued ribs, really good ones. I created a postcard, this picture of ribs, said, my ribs are the best you've ever tasted. I'm so sure. Come into my restaurant, present this card for a free rib dinner. You look at the card. There's no restriction. It doesn't say you have to be with somebody paying. It doesn't say you can't come on Saturday and Sunday. I can get a rib dinner with this. So now I go to the restaurant and I drop the card. I say, I'm here for my free rib dinner. Great. Here's the science in the United States. And, and I bet my life on the fact that it carries there too. If a person goes to a restaurant for the first time 
and has a wonderful experience, the statistical likelihood of a second visit is under 40%. Under 40%. If they happen to come back to that restaurant for a second visit and have another flawless experience, the statistical likelihood of a third visit is about 42%. Let's say they come back for a third visit and they have another flawless experience. The statistical likelihood of a fourth visit is over 70%. So as restaurateurs and as bar people, you've got to learn to market to three visits, not one. That's the magic. So this guest walks in, puts his postcard down, gets a free rib dinner. Ribs, salad, potato, food costs for me about $4.95 US. So that's the cost of my rib dinner. But at the end of the meal, when he sat, when he sat down in the restaurant, when he walked in, a host said to him, hi, have you been here before? He says, no, no, I haven't. It's my first visit. When they sat him, they put a red beverage napkin in front of him. You're a pretty smart guy, Ali. Look around. Everybody else has a white beverage napkin. You've got a red one. You say, why? Oh, first-time customer. We always give red napkins to first-time customers. Oh, that's pretty cool. Now, every employee in this restaurant knows it's a first-time customer. As the meal is over, the manager comes up to the table with the red napkin and says, how are those ribs? Says, Unbelievable. Most delicious ribs I've ever had. He goes, oh, you got to try our chicken takes out a business card, writes on the back, $5 off chicken, gives it to him, said, come back and try the chicken. Guy now is buddy, John, the manager, hand wrote this card. He comes back three days later, has the chicken, drops his card on the table. As soon as he drops his card on the table, the manager's told, visit two on table nine because of the chicken card. Now he finishes the chicken. The check arrives. The manager hits the table again. How was that chicken? Oh, great. Were you stuffed? Oh, man, I'm completely full. Next time, you got to try my cheesecake. Free piece of cheesecake. Gives him a piece of cheesecake. Okay, let's review this for a moment. The rib dinner cost me $4.95. Call it $5 US. The chicken $5 off was a break even. The cheesecake cost me $1.50. That's now a total of $6.50. Now, I've invested $6.50. I invested another dollar in the first postcard that got this whole thing going. So I now have $7.50 invested in a customer who has an over 70% chance of coming back for a fourth visit. That's how I market restaurants. And now those cards will go out to that four block area that is my trade area. And I will work the hell out of that to get all of these people into that third critical visit. So... If we took a look at radio advertising, television advertising, newspaper advertising, and, and you know, I know that here in America, a newspaper adds four or five hundred dollars. You know, a, a good amount of radio spots can be twelve hundred dollars U.S. TV spots can be far more than that. In America, the cost of acquiring a new customer through traditional media—and I'm a TV guy—can run seventy to eighty dollars a head. In my scenario. I spent $6.50, but I didn't have to pay anything until you came. So I suggest we all start taking dollars out of our marketing budgets, start to put them in a comp budget, target 20, 30 people a week, bring them in, do the red napkin program, get them back for visit two, get them back for visit three. Work this and don't give your money to the media. Give your money to neighborhood marketing. Yeah, question uh, from Alex O'Hagan. What would you say is more important to the success of a business, good product or good atmosphere, and why? You know, it's interesting. Uh, I always say price is the least most important. You never leave a great experience and say, wow, that was expensive, do you? <laughs> no. 
you can have the most expensive steak or whatever in town, but you never leave saying, wow, that was expensive. You always leave saying it was great. So let's put price out of it. You know, product is critical, of course, but atmosphere is just as important. Let me give you an example. You know, if you look at a three meal a day restaurant, coffee shop serves breakfast, lunch, and dinner. The lights are bright. And the waiters walk fast. Go to a fine dining restaurant. The lights are low. The waiter walks slow, doesn't he? Everything moves at a pace. If that waiter walked too fast, that steak wouldn't be worth $100 anymore. So lighting and pace is critical to value, perception, and experience. Pay very careful attention to that. I do. I call it the mechanical dynamics of a business. We must make sure our mechanics drive the value and experience in our atmosphere. So I take a look at that as a, as a critical factor. Obviously, product... Uh, uh, um, but, you know, what you didn't put on this list and what worries me is presentation. <laughs> now, to me, that should be on the list. Now, to me, give me a good atmosphere and a killer product presentation that gets on Instagram and the food probably just needs to be good, honestly. And I'm not suggesting you just do good food. I wouldn't say that at all. If the food is great, the presentation is social media worthy and you're creating a pace and an energetic or whatever the appropriate environment is, I think those are the three steps to success. Thanks, uh, John. And uh, we've got one question here. What is one fact about you that, that people can't find online? Oh, boy. Uh, 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 <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm so public, obviously. I'm trying to think of something. Yeah. You know, I'm here in my house in Las Vegas with my beautiful wife when, when, and my two dogs. I have two rescue dogs. I'm very much into, into animal rescue, support a lot of animal rescue charities. I'm also on the board of the Cleveland Clinic which is one of the finest medical institutions here and, by the way, in the United Kingdom as well. So there are many things that I do that aren't TV, but, you know, probably the one thing that people uh, uh, don't know about me is I don't scream this much at home. <laughs> I just, I know you said one final, but one more. This hasn't come up on the on the screen. Uh, sorry, here it is. Some companies around the world have slashed their uh, marketing budget to save money during the pandemic. What would you say to leaders who have decided to do this? Well, you know, I think that we need to understand, and, and all of us do, during this pandemic, there's two issues. There's sustaining a company during the pandemic, which means watching your money and making sure you can sustain your existence during this thing. And then there's having enough resources when the pandemic ends to relaunch your business. If you spend it all during the sustaining period, you might not have the resources to launch it properly when the pandemic ends. So understand that corporations are trying to manage their budgets in these ways. And we don't know how long sustaining is. We don't know if we go back to a lockdown in the fall. All of these things worry this. So no different than people are at home watching their money. So are corporations. So they've moved to cut back on marketing dollars, which makes sense because they want to make certain that they can slam those marketing dollars when they need them when this pandemic ends with promotional activity, activation activity, good marketing programs, new trust Based messaging programs. Uh, uh, there's a lot of money they're going to have to spend in the next few weeks. So we should understand as a TV person, I'm very frustrated by this. Television ratings are as high as they've ever been here, of course, with streaming services and everything. Mm. And ad revenue is going down. So that model doesn't work anymore. The higher the revenues doesn't mean the higher the advertising anymore. We're all experiencing these things. Okay, no, thank you, John. That was absolutely uh, uh, fascinating. Really, really appreciate your time today. Some great questions there from our audience as well. Just want to say thank you. And do you, do you any final thoughts, John, uh, before you but, but before you leave us? Yeah, I, I would like to leave a final thought. You know, in a time like this, many of us get paralyzed. We get intimidated and overcome by this. But make no mistake, over these next few months, we're going to see great marketers bubble to the top. We're going to see great promoters create energy and excitement and events, and they'll bubble to the top.
We're going to see great operators and brands, maybe brands that were small, come and bubble to the top. We might even see big brands drop to the bottom. My point is this. This is not the time to be paralyzed. This is the time to be that person who bubbles to the top, to have those ideas and those energies. Don't let this paralyze you. Now is the time to make it mobilize you.